and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and I'm joined today in the studio with Iceland Review staff writer Alina Maura. Today we're going to be taking a look at an archival piece that was first published in Iceland Review in 1973 by one Brendan Glacken, then an Irish student at the University of Iceland. Today we have kind of a fun piece uh, for the official day of the Icelandic language entitled The Awful Icelandic Language. And afterwards we are going to be chatting about some of the uh, more interesting aspects and challenges and downfalls and also some resources for Icelandic language learners. From the archive, The Awful Icelandic Language. Note. This article was published in Ice Interview in 1973. Archival content is presented in unaltered form and may not necessarily reflect the current editorial standards of Ice Interview. People set out to learn Icelandic for various reasons, most of them highly dubious. Some people, not content with their own back gardens, come to Iceland for the sake of adventure and fall to learning the language for no better reason than an idle curiosity to know what other people are saying. Others will tell you that they wish to read the famous Icelandic sagas in the original, which is hard to believe since anybody who knows anything can tell you they are quite sufficiently incomprehensible in translation. Some people, of course, are not satisfied with being mystified in their own language. Many other people who attempt to learn Icelandic do so because, as they will proudly tell you, it is related to their own tongue. It belongs, they claim, to the same language family. All I can say to this is that in every family there are some very suspicious characters, and the less said about them, the better. At heart, I suspect all learners of Icelandic of being no better than a sort of literary mountaineer. They are interested in it only because it is there. Icelandic is a Germanic language. This fact alone should serve as sufficient warning for most people, but not so. Icelandic grammar is so complicated as to make it more Germanic than German itself. Consider, for instance, the question of grammatical gender. In Icelandic, a man is masculine and a woman is feminine. So far, so good. But after this, common sense disappears. A pork chop is male, while a Mars bar is neuter. A barber is masculine, but his shop is feminine. A cat is masculine, a catalog feminine, and a child neuter. A Coca-Cola, presumably because the shape of the bottle is feminine. A bus is masculine, and presumably you understand by now why I often feel like leaping on him and letting him take me as far away as possible from where the Icelandic language is spoken. Last week, I visited the main post office in Reykjavik. My errand was a simple one, and I spoke entirely in Icelandic. The conversation was as follows. I would like to post a dainty little parcel to my aunt, Caramelia. I see. Where is he, and where is he going? A long pause ensued at this point, while I looked vacantly around the office. At last, I gave up. Who? The little parcel about whom you've spoken. Another pause. And finally, understanding dawns. Oh, him. Why, here he is. I almost forgot to collect my change. Masculine plural. 
but to continue. An aerodrome is masculine, while an aeroplane is feminine. Coffins and oil are feminine, but a codfish is masculine. A leg, if unspecified, is masculine, but a leg of mutton is neuter. Shoelaces are feminine, as are vacuum cleaners, but shoes and vacuum flasks are masculine, and trousers are feminine plural. Consider then the difficulties that face you as you sit down to order your Icelandic breakfast. Though a chicken is masculine and a hen feminine, an egg is neuter. Now, while both coffee and bread are, by a totally unexpected stroke of grammatical logic, completely sexless, a cup of coffee is masculine and a slice of bread is feminine. Furthermore, after the best Icelandic traditions, all these items are, of course, grammatically declined. Now, I have no intention of lowering the tone of this article by an unnecessary discussion of Icelandic grammatical declensions, but I will say this, that in a friendly land, I consider an unpardonable breach of hospitality that anyone should be asked to decline a cup of coffee or even an egg, regardless of its gender, before 2 p.m., at least in the afternoon. It is enough to give one indigestion before even beginning one's meal. But there is an even more hair-raising problem involved in the superficially simple act of ordering breakfast in Iceland. As if it were not enough to have to decline every adjective, noun, pronoun, personal name, and place name, every man, woman, and child, every single piece of toast, every pork chop, and every bowl of skier. The devilish inventor of the Icelandic language has ordained that for good measure, the numbers from one to four, inclusive, shall all be declined. Nobody who has never tried to speak Icelandic can conceive of the traumas for which this playful little rule is responsible. Picture yourself sitting at the hotel table. You have carefully learned the Icelandic words for toast and coffee, and the simple discovery that the word for egg is ek has renewed interest in comparative linguistics and put you at peace with the world. Along comes the waiter. Ek, you say firmly taking care to follow your book by putting the stress on the first syllable. How many, says he. You are trapped. How were you to know that ek can mean more than one egg? So if all you want is one, is it et, ein, or eight egg? Two cups of coffee. Do you ask for tveir, tveir, or tvo? Þrír, þrjár, or þrjú pieces of toast. Well, which is it? You don't know? Of course you don't. I didn't know either. In fact, at this stage, I don't even care. I assume the appearance of a deaf mute, and I use my fingers for counting, as sensible people did before the invention of outrageous languages like Icelandic. If, however, you possess a little more nerve than does the ordinary individual, there is another method of crashing the barrier of Icelandic declension of numerals. This consists of avoiding completely the numbers from one to four, and simply asking for five of everything. The Icelandic word for five is fim, and apart from being easy to pronounce, its great advantage is that it never changes at all. Cup of coffee, sir? Yes, five, you answer firmly. If this exchange is followed by a short pause, and then the waiter repeats his question a little more slowly, then you merely repeat your answer, a little more firmly. Plate of toast, sir? Yes. 
five. Admittedly, when you are eventually confronted by five cups of coffee, five plates of toast, five glasses of orange juice, and five boiled eggs, you may get the feeling that people are looking your way. You may even be right, but take no notice. Console yourself with the knowledge that had you attempted to grammatically decline any of the items in front of you, you would have doubtless have suffered the fate already referred to, namely that of indigestion before even beginning to eat. Now, however, you can tackle your meal with a relish and worry about indigestion later on. While not practicable everywhere, this method of ordering is a singularly effective one in Icelandic hotel bars. I have noticed that even in the most crowded establishments, a space is quickly cleared for the individual who orders his drink in the manner outlined above. If nothing else, the five-fold order in Iceland at least engenders respect. Icelandic is no language for the fastidious. A friend of mine, who has been studying the language for close on 10 years, has informed me privately that it contains more common nouns and irregular verbs than he would care to mention. I myself heard used, in the presence of ladies, some highly irregular verbs and some of the commonest nouns imaginable. I have now made it a point of honor with myself, when in mixed company, to leave the room immediately on their utterance of any of these words, and return only when some semblance of respect for female company has been restored. In small gatherings, my frequent exits and re-entrances scarcely cause any disturbance at all, but at larger affairs, while I have to be formally announced, or rather re-announced, up to 20 or 25 times, I regret to say that I have occasionally noticed a certain weariness of expression on the face of the butler to whom this duty falls. Icelandic presents another problem of an even more delicate nature. Now, I do not consider myself a prudish person, nor do I easily flinch. But though the Icelandic word for six is a very simple one and indeclinable, I have never yet been able to bring myself to ask in Icelandic for six of anything. If it is essential that I have, for example, six blood puddings, I ask for five. And then, as casually as possible, I ask for another. I do not attempt to explain this behavior. Suffice it to say that where I come from, six has one meaning, and sex has another meaning altogether. Lest anyone think at this point that Icelandic possesses no virtues at all, let me hasten to show that this is not true. In the first place, the Icelandic language displays, as English does not, a healthy contempt for euphemism. For example, when an Englishman speaks of the denudation of the countryside, the process referred to sounds no more objectionable than the process of undressing for bed. But when an Icelander speaks of uppblastur, we are not only given a mental picture of the process, but also a hint of how the man feels about it. Again, if you didn't know what diabetes was, you would have never discovered its meaning from the word itself without knowing Greek but sikursiki is sugar sickness, and no Icelander could mistake it for anything else. Anyone might be forgiven for thinking the English term casuist to be a complementary one, but a breakdown of the corresponding term in Icelandic shows that an orðaflækjumaður is precisely that, a word-raveling man. 
Some Icelandic words and phrases contain a great deal more meaning than their length would suggest. Such a word is ha, which translates loosely to English as I beg your pardon, I'm afraid I didn't quite catch what you just said, and would you mind repeating it? Clearly, this is a very handy word to have at one's disposal, and has the advantage of being easy to learn. I myself mastered it within a week. Equally useful is the phrase Literally, this means no more than that is namely that, but in conversational style, it is used to signify complete agreement with what the other person is saying, usually when what the other person is saying is of no consequence whatsoever. Armed with this phrase and the word ha, the learner of Icelandic is adequately prepared for any conversational emergency that may arise. Icelanders speak very fast. In fact, in this respect, they are as bad as the French, and everybody knows what they're like. For the person who is unprepared, the speed at which Icelandic is spoken can occasionally lead to highly embarrassing situations. Only last week, for example, a friend of mine was sitting in a Reykjavik restaurant studying the menu, when a waitress approached, smiled, and said, Kahta. At least, that's what it sounded like to him. In fact, of course, as anyone who has studied the language for only a couple of years could have easily told him, the waitress said, Kvad var thav, meaning, what was that? Meaning, may I be of some assistance? But how could my friend have known all of this? Under the circumstances, he reacted only as a gentleman could do. Without a moment's hesitation, he leaped up, proffered his hand to the young lady, and shouted, Harry. Oh, but see the clock. She lacks only ten minutes to eight, and I must fly. My dinner waits, he grows cold, quickly must I eat him. Then comes my friend. Together shall we see the film. She must be good. Homewards intend I then, to read the Icelandic book. Hardly, indeed, can I wait. So entertaining she is, my Icelandic grammar, so full of funny things, of outrageous constructions like these, for example, and nothing thinks she at all of appropriating a sex to an inanimate log of wood, or a sheepskin, or a carrot. Oh, I must study her more, practice myself, as she engagingly puts it. And so finally will come the day, or so she promises, when the Icelandic language I shall speak like a native, though a native of what country she declines to specify. When I shall speak it so well and so fast that Icelanders will understand me perfectly, and I shan't know at all what I'm saying myself, when at last, oh happy day, I shall have completely mastered the Icelandic language. But oh dear, oh my poor nerves, at what cost? At what cost? Thanks for sharing the piece. It's always very interesting to to hear about somebody's um, language learning experience, especially back in the 70s. Yeah, it's also certainly interesting uh, just going back into the archives and seeing how much ICE interview has changed. Uh, you know, in general, we strive to present this content as it was presented then. I think it's important for the historical context, but, you know, I think it's also fair to say um, that if we were writing about Icelandic language learning today. This isn't exactly uh, the tack that we would take. Uh, however, it is worth noting. Uh, I mean, of course, um, some people might be familiar with this, but there's a 
pretty well-known Mark Twain essay uh, entitled The Awful German Language, in which he somewhat, you know, satirically pokes fun at German. So I I believe that is uh, what the author was going for. Um, maybe it lands with some people, maybe it doesn't. Okay, I didn't know that. I have to I have to read the piece by Mark Twain. Yeah, you know, he kind of just laments how difficult German is in various ways. And, you know, of course, it is also a complaint that comes from a place of love because Mark Twain was also a student of German uh, and he spent some time in Germany, I believe. Um, so, you know, it's the kind of things that one can complain about when one is like deeply familiar with it. So it's always easy to complain when you're learning a language and just kind of rest on the negative instead of yeah concentrating on the positive aspects but well, of course and, entertaining and there's definitely something maybe i don't know cathartic about some of these things you know uh it does go without saying that learning any language can be difficult and sometimes just sharing some of the difficulties and challenges can be worthwhile to just kind of talk about some of the frustrations Exactly, and hopefully get over them. Um, so next week, as you already mentioned it, is the Icelandic Language Day on the 16th of November. And it is... Uh, yes, but as we listen <laughs> to this, uh, it will have happened yesterday. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and it is also the birthday of the national uh, poet Jonas Hattgrimsson. Yeah, exactly. So um, just quickly for anybody who doesn't know... Um, November 16th is the day of the Icelandic language, or in Icelandic, Dagur Íslenskrar Tunku. Um, and it's held on November 16th because this is the birthday of Jonas Hattrimsson. Uh, he was a pretty influential poet and a member of the Icelandic independence movement. Uh, he lived for a long time in Copenhagen, I believe, uh, where he also uh, was a founder and co uh, contributor to Fjölnir, which was an influential uh, journal and literary publication uh, that was really kind of central to the Icelandic independence movement. And so, in, you know, like, like in addition to various events and stuff throughout town um, and throughout the nation, uh, there's also um, a prize that's presented on the day of the Icelandic language. Last year, I believe it went to one Bragi Valdemar Skulason, who's a musician and songwriter um, and some other Noteworthy uh, recipients of the prize have included uh, former president, former president Vigdís Finnbogadóttir, sorry, uh, for her contributions to uh, the Icelandic language, education, etc. Okay, interesting. I'm very excited to see who it will be this year, and I believe the prize is handed over by the Minister of Education. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about maybe our own experiences with learning Icelandic. I believe they are quite different because you have been growing up with influences of Icelandic. Meanwhile, when I came to Iceland for... So I came to Iceland for the first time as a tourist in 2015, but then when I moved here in 2019, I didn't even know what the language sounded like because <laughs> I was just kind of naive, 19, and... I looked up some stuff on YouTube, but to be honest, there wasn't really much to find, especially just for a quick kind of course to, to get a grip on the language. Mm. Um, so the first steps have been quite difficult for me. How, how was it for you? 
Well, yeah, this is something that I've talked about um, about several times on here. So, you know, maybe long-term listeners are tired of hearing about me. Uh, but just briefly, um, yeah, I mean, I kind of came from an international family with a German father and Icelandic mother. And so, you know, I definitely grew up around the language, um, but it wasn't uh, until later in life that I really kind of formally applied myself to learning it. And, you know, I kind of came at it from maybe a different angle or perspective than some other people might have um, because my graduate studies um, at the University of Iceland were in historical linguistics and history and literature. And so, you know, I definitely developed like a more structural and academic knowledge of the language, which, you know, personally for me was really interesting. It's something that I'm interested in, but it was kind of hard to make this leap to like living in the language and like really actually using it. Uh, this is also something that I talked a little bit about in a recent piece of mine um, on Gave Him Islandska Science, or Let's Give Icelandic a Chance. Um, you know, how it can be kind of difficult to move from this like reading knowledge and this kind of comprehension knowledge of Icelandic to like actually using it, living with it. Um, but yeah, so that's just a kind of brief outline of my experience with it. And, you know, I mean, certainly this is changing a lot, even since, for instance, you have been in Iceland, like since 2019. I mean, I think that there are all, like, there are already a lot more resources. I mean, of course, one of the problems uh, with a small language like Icelandic is that, you know, like often there just aren't really a lot of resources for people. And we can kind of talk about that later. Um, but I think that's a kind of, uh, that's a frustration shared by a lot of people. There is just a, to have an accessible, maybe platform where you can integrate the language learning into your everyday life. Like it would be on, for example, apps like Duolingo or Bubble yeah. um, with other languages. So I still feel like that is pers like missing a little bit personally for me. Um, but what kickstarted my language learning or at least the comprehension of it is that I came here to be an au pair, so I basically moved in with an Icelandic family, was just surrounded by Icelandic, and I also had to learn how to communicate to the kids because they did not speak one word of English. Um, so I was just kind of thrown into the deep end and just kind of had to get a grasp on, on Icelandic, which worked out fine, but now I am a little bit in the process that you just described of uh, kind of coming from understanding a lot, but now I need to get to the point where I also am brave enough to talk <laughs> in my everyday life and not just kind of rest on my achievements of comprehension. And I feel like that's, I have also heard that from many people, the most difficult step to just start talking and not always be worried and scared of making mistakes. Yeah, you know, I think that... Um I think that the biggest challenge for a lot of people is, um, you know, very often Icelandic is described as one of the hardest languages in the world to, to, to learn. And, you know, there are indeed real reasons why that's the case. Like there's a lot of grammar, for instance, and it's never enough to just know what a word is. You have to know how it changes, etc. But, you know, I think that like the, like the bigger point for a lot of people is that there's this whole social aspect to why it's difficult to learn Icelandic. 
And, you know, I think that like a lot of people would agree that, um, you know, like this, like beyond the grammar book, like this kind of intangible social thing is actually the hardest part of it. Um, you know, uh, I have lived in other countries and learned other languages. Um, I mean, like for instance, in Germany, I lived there for some time and I've, you know, I've also spoken about this, uh, previously here. So maybe this isn't so interesting for people. Um, but you know, I just never had this problem that I think that a lot of people have here in Iceland, which is that you use the language in a public setting and people just always revert to English. And I think that's kind of strange and unfortunate that that's the case. You know, I mean, in some sense, it makes sense because with the tourist industry, especially uh, Reykjavik can feel overwhelmingly English sometimes. Um, but, you know, I think that's like a really big challenge is like overcoming this instinct to always switch, you know? Yeah, it is quite disencouraging when you are, I don't know, like ordering food and they just switch into English and you're just like, hey, but I'm, I'm trying. And it's also a little bit with tourists. I feel like you, if you live here and you are a foreigner, you don't want to be perceived as a tourist. So that's why, for example, I always make the effort to order everything in Icelandic to be like, hey, I live here too. Like, I'm trying. Um, but I, ha I think it is getting better. Like, I haven't really had the situation in the recent past where, where Icelandic people then switched to English, which is good because it always is kind of a little bit like a punch in the face. Um, but I can also kind of, um, I kind of agree with the author of the, of the article that you read earlier with the numbers. Like it is still very difficult for me sometimes and I still have to go on, the website is called Bean, it's for the declension of uh, words. And I still have to sometimes look up uh, what is like, I don't know, three bread loaves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just how, which gender or yeah, which gender am I using for the number then? And it is something. Yes, yeah, so like, a, like a frantic last minute bean search before an yes. order is pretty common. <laughs> yeah, it's basically <laughs> I'm doing it every single time. <laughs> so I can relate to that a lot. Um, well, so besides <clears throat> this social aspect, like, have you personally found anything particularly challenging uh, about learning the language? Mm, yeah, I think the declension and the, the cases, the four cases, they just confuse me a lot. Like, for example, declension of names in the beginning, people were like, Alinu, and I was yeah. like, my name is Alina, not Alina. And then I got the point. Um, so for example, like with Eyjall, it would be here er Eyjall. Uh, um Eyjall, Frau Akli. Akli. <laughs> it's always the Nordic uh, like study is the number one experience. I think like I learned Old Norse in university and yeah. Akli was always the number one example. To Eyjalls. So yeah. I mean, it is easier with a lot of names where it's just... Alina, Alinu, Alinu, Alinu. Um, but I just have such a difficult time uh, when I am trying to talk to just get the right form yeah. and not frantically go on being and looking everything up and then the conversation is already at a different place and I'm out of it. Um, so I think that's a little bit the thing. And for me, honestly, it's just starting to talk. And 
especially if you're in a group of people that are speaking Icelandic and you understand and you want to participate, then sometimes when you have dragged out the right thought of your on like out of your brain, the conversation is already at a different point. And you're like, okay, I'm too late now. So yeah. I've been meaning to do some research to check if this is the case, but I suspect that one of the reasons why um, kind of pet names uh, for people that you're familiar with is so are, are, are so popular in Iceland is because very often um, people's nickname will be, um, you know, like, like so the, there's this distinction between weak and strong nouns and for the non-grammatically inclined, uh, the important thing to know about those is that one of them is easier to work with than the other. And I suspect one of the reasons why nicknames are so popular is because they're generally the weak form and in general, that's a little bit easier to work with. So, I mean, for instance, you know, gummi uh, then just becomes gumma in all the other forms. And the same applies for a lot of female names, uh, you know, with this A to U change. And so, although that's a little bit strange, at least these nicknames are kind of more regular in a way uh, than some of their uh, kind of original forms. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, rather strange uh at, as a kid i remember being kind of weirded out somehow that my mother's name was erna but when somebody was talking to her all of a sudden it was erne and it was like there was something i couldn't really quite understand about you know but but that's her name like names don't change <laughs> exactly <clears throat> it's super strange when you kind of actively hear it for the first time yeah. but it would make sense with the nicknames yeah. um that it's just easier to to decline or declench yeah, so, yeah. decline yeah. decline yeah um and also with nicknames but different topic now but sometimes it's really difficult to derive the actual name from the nickname i'm always very confused at that Okay, what's yeah, your actual I name? Think, I think that's a pretty universal feature of nicknames. I mean, like, for instance, like like a lot of Slavic languages have, like, pretty big nickname systems. I mean, if if I'm not mistaken, like, a pretty common nickname for Alexander in Russian is just Sasha. So, yeah. I don't know if that's peculiar to Icelandic. Maybe not. Maybe not. I think you just kind of, you just need to know the language and... Uh, backgrounds and, and to to be able to yeah find the actual names <clears throat> but um i don't know speaking of names which sometimes i always found a bit ancient sounding compared mm. to german names like a lot of regular names like Guthrun, Gutrun, or ingeborg ingeborg of in, in german are quite old and i don't know a 16 year old kid wouldn't be called that mm. i think it also applies to um, um a lot of words or sentence structures sometimes um i know you have a little bit of background in just old words from your <laughs> studies <laughs> to put it very basic yeah i mean uh certainly icelandic just has a very archaic way of expressing things very often i mean i think that there is a certain beauty in that like it can just be very direct um you know, if you just kind of think of the kind of trademark style of the Icelandic sagas, uh, you know, like like very often sagas just begin with, you know, there was a man called Mordur or something like that. 
Um, and you know, just like these really kind of Hemingway style, just like brief declarative sentences. And, you know, like there's a certain roughness to it, but I think that, you know, there can also be a lot of beauty. Um, you know, I mean, certainly just in terms of how old the language feels, um, you know, I think that, you know, something that just always kind of interests me is, um, you know, just these small ways in which the language, you know, uh, having been relatively unchanged for about a thousand years, you know, in some sense, even today in 2023, we're still kind of living in this world that the language is creating for us, by which I mean, there are some assumptions of the world that we're living in that are kind of coming from the language. And, you know, because this is a language that was spoken by medieval Norse farmers, uh, there are still some ways in which the language assumes that you live on a medieval Norse farm. Um, you know, uh, like, like nothing really that major, right? But something that I think is kind of interesting is, um, for instance, direction is really important in Icelandic. Like there's this system uh, for kind of building these suffixes onto directions. So, you know, like one can go north, but one also comes from the north. Uh, and I mean, obviously in English, we just express that with a preposition. Uh, but, you know, so Icelandic, we might say something like norður or norðan, uh, same thing with the other directions. And so it's always important, like where someone's going, where they're coming from. I think that has a lot to do with travel, travel by boat, the maritime tradition. There's always a sense that like you're setting off on a journey. Um, you know, I, 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 I think there's definitely something kind of old and historic there. Um, but you know, that's also what I love about Icelandic is like, you just feel like you're in a different world sometimes. It does. I always get very, very excited when I see or hear words that are still kind of the same in German. Because yes. then you always know it's a super, super old word that has yeah, exactly. survived until now in both languages. Like, and one example would be strax in Icelandic is like now. Like, for example, people would or parents would call their kids like, <laughs> and in German, you would say schnurstracks and actually kind of also just in the same context. It's more like you wouldn't really use it to like co-workers or something. It's mostly used for kids um, or like basic whose house, house in German, in English, um, or Augenblick, Augenblick, yep. like yeah. uh, moment yep. in English. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just some of my favorite words are the really old ones um, because very often you see these irregularities that are shared across the Germanic languages. And with these really old words, I mean, very often the words that are like the most basic to the language, you know, so just words like to be, for instance, these words go way back in time and they have a lot of irregularities that are actually shared across languages, which really just shows how deep the connection goes. So for instance, one of my favorite words, and this is going to be a little bit of a, di of a digression, um, but nevertheless, I think it's really interesting. Uh, so one of my favorite words is the verb bua, which is, it can mean a lot of things. Um, I mean, it can mean to build to dwell somewhere, to live somewhere, uh, used in certain other 
like 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 with a certain preposition it can mean to like prepare something uh, but it has to do with building dwelling living etc um and so when we conjugate it when i say i live somewhere i would say yek be and of course this is just exactly the same in english the verb be there's also some really interesting and kind of cool things that happened with the other verb for to be which is vera and uh even uh when the sagas were being written down uh the 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 r and the s were essentially interchangeable so there was a form of vera which was also vesa or veja um and you see this across the germanic languages with uh like for instance the verb for to be in german right now is sein but it's kind of a chimera like in english where there's like three or four verbs that kind of ended up under the same roof somehow and so in german we have this verb wesen and gewesen which is a form of it uh which is the same thing as vesa and like over time this s kind of changed into an r and you know like there's like a long history there but i just think it's really cool how these same words surface in the different germanic languages and not just that they surface but that they also very often retain these kind of irregularities that show how deep the connection goes and i i just i just love that kind of thing <laughs> i think it's just awesome <laughs> i i actually didn't know that with gewesen with visa that's yeah wow that's really interesting interesting to hear it is a bit nerdy for the grammatically inclined there is uh something called werner's law which uh describes how this kind of r and s sound change happen yeah which is actually pretty interesting but uh i i can already see uh listeners eyes rolling back <laughs> in their head so i've talked about it so much so right? <laughs> Um, I think my favorite Icelandic words are a bit more basic. <laughs> Not much backstory to them. Um so one of them I know is it's a uh, it's super basic is ljósmóðir. It's like light mother which is a midwife. Yeah, yeah. Um has this very beautiful meaning to the word. Um and also I think hugfangen Mm. like trapped in thoughts literally means fascinated by something i don't i really love it or like grilukerte is an ice pinnick no what do you say an icicle yeah icicle yeah. icicle um which just grilla is uh, like she always or her kids the julelads come on christmas now or in the period before christmas and she's the mother of them and and basically her candles are icicles Yeah, so for anybody that doesn't know, uh Krila is the kind of troll ogre mother of the so-called uh Yule lads. Yes, the 13 Yule lads that are starting to come soon and her husband is Leppalude oh. and she always treats him very poorly. <laughs> Poor <laughs> bastard. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about, you know, how old Icelandic is, how far back it goes, but obviously it's a living language still spoken by a modern nation and it is changing you know like like maybe <laughs> you can just briefly talk about some of the things that are kind of on people's minds right now and just any challenges that Icelandic is facing as a modern language okay so i mean there are new words being created for for example issues like um 
non-binary people that of course also need pronouns um, in the Icelandic language like stalp, kvár and haun uh, as the third uh, pronoun basically is uh, uh, hún, han and haun now so one issue that I'm really curious about is how the I would call it gendering in the language will work in the future Um, like for example in German we have a very big discussion now on how to properly gender which means I mean German is also gendered language so for example with uh, like teacher Lehrer you mostly also always use the generic masculinum which of course then excludes a big group of female teachers that are not they don't feel like they're spoken to when you just use the generic masculinum um, so I'm just really curious how it will evolve in Iceland because for example the prime minister is called for Saitis Rauthera and Hera I mean is a man but uh, I mean it's Katrin Jakobsdottir so she is a woman so for example when I read Icelandic news articles that just refer to Rauthera I always think that the position is um, seated by a man um, which I think now in today's time, I'm just curious how it will change because Iceland is a very gender equal country to some degree, of course. We've talked about that in one of the last episodes about the women's uh, strike. Um, but Well, so I think that uh, one of the things that Icelandic really has going for it is that as a smaller language, it is more agile and it can kind of change and adapt a little bit more easily as well. I mean, for instance, um, with regard to gender politics and language, I mean, uh, Kvaur and Stalp and Haun have kind of already entered the official curriculum. Uh, Icelandic language learners who are beginning to learn Icelandic today will encounter these words. Um, I mean, at least as far as I know, like all of the major uh, textbooks and uh, like the... um, like the private companies that teach Icelandic, uh, for instance, and um, like at the university, like these pronouns are already introduced, um, you know, just kind of from the very beginning. So, you know, I think that as a smaller language, Iceland can be adaptive and kind of quicker maybe than some like larger world languages. Um, And, you know, it's also just worth uh, kind of just describing this, uh, there was recently a little bit of a debate um, over uh, some terminology for sailors and fishermen. And so uh, one of the words traditionally for a sailor or a fisherman was siomadur, I mean, literally a seaman or also a fiskemadur can also work. Um, and, you know, as you were saying, uh, there's maybe a certain assumption that comes with these words that the person doing that job is a man in that sense. Um, and there was some talk about um, instead using the word fiskari, um, which it's worth noting isn't a neologism. Like it wasn't just created. Uh, it's attested at least into like the early 19th century. Um, there's a um, professor emeritus, uh, Erikur Rukvaldsson. Uh, he is a very kind of influential 
voice on a lot of these topics, and I recommend uh, looking up an essay, which is in Icelandic, uh, by him on this, uh, although of course people are free to use Google Translate. And so, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, do we use this word that is a little bit less gendered? Do we keep the traditional word? Um, I don't really know if, you know, there's been a definitive answer to that question yet, but, you know, I think that it's also worth using that as an example to kind of talk about how does Icelandic handle innovation and change? Um, because, you know, I think that it is good and healthy for the language, you know, when something new happens to address it. But then at the same time, I think that it's really great that Icelandic in general tries to draw from itself and from its history. Um, and, you know, so instead of inventing a new word, although of course that does happen, like in the case of haun and kvaur and stalp, for instance, but, you know, I mean, like sometimes we can also just go back and look at, you know, well, like how have we done things before? And like maybe there is something that's kind of fallen out of use, something that we can change, something that we can repurpose. And I think it's good to kind of keep a living connection like that. Um, so for instance, uh, some examples that some people might be uh, familiar with are tulva, which is the word for a computer, and simi, which is the word for a phone, which actually uh, come from older words, um, but were kind of repurposed in some ways. Yes. <clears throat> so I think, yeah, it's very important that even, I mean, you want to protect the language because there is already a big English influence. If you he hear a lot of Icelandic teenagers speak today, you can, yeah, just hear that they are implementing a lot of English terms into their everyday language. And, but of course, then also develop so people don't feel excluded from the language like non-binary people and maybe, yes, also other discriminated groups in society. Um, so it will be interesting how the next years will be if Icelandic will follow maybe like regarding gendering a similar route than uh, German or if we will find a new solution for these issues. Um, but it will stay definitely interesting. Um, so also like just a lot of technological developments that are happening, they need new words. So I believe, is there a committee for finding, I believe there is, or an organization or institute that is finding new phrases and, and vocabulary for new things that are being introduced? Yeah, the exact name is escaping me, but I can put that in the show notes if people are interested. Um, and, you know, finally, it's maybe, so I think that, um, a lot of coverage of Icelandic, the Icelandic language recently has been negative and there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. Uh, the Icelandic language education system could be made a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, you know, I think that it's maybe just quickly worth uh, just outlining, you know, what does it look like to learn Icelandic right now, today? Like what resources are out there? what's helpful for people, uh, what's maybe less helpful. Um, I mean, for instance, off the top of my head, um, I think that a lot of people, um, like, it, it's very understandable that there's a lot of interest in having an Icelandic Duolingo, for instance, uh, because it's very convenient, and a lot of people already use it for other languages. 
personally, I haven't found it to be the most useful tool in learning other languages. You know, I mean, like it's one of these things that can kind of get you to an A2, B1 kind of level. Yeah, I think it helps like in the beginning to get the first grasp grasp on the language, but after it's just kind of your stagnating. But I think precisely the problem right now is that there are these kind of elementary resources for Icelandic, but then I think there's like a really big gap with um, kind of getting people to that next kind of intermediate level. And I think that I I perceive that as a real lack right now. Yes, exactly. Because, <clears throat> I mean, there are multiple language schools, but they are also very expensive. So you can often just do the first five, six, seven courses and then I have had a lot of the experience, a lot of experience with friends that have done it. That then they're still on the stagnating level, not really knowing how and where to go further. Um, so it is worth noting that um, with many of these private schools, uh, most workers in Iceland are unionized, and most labor unions do offer uh, like a reimbursement for education. But nevertheless, it is worth mentioning also that in general. Uh, like one has a limited reimbursement and, you know, in a given year, there's maybe enough reimbursement for, you know, three, four, six week long classes. So, you know, although that's definitely nice for uh, non-native workers in Iceland, uh, you know, there's like, there's definitely room for improvement and it could be made more accessible. Exactly. And I mean, you still need to need to visit the language schools outside of your working hours and invest your private time in that. So it's also uh, a privileged thing that not everybody has the option to do. Um, honestly, one other big um, recommendation is I've heard many good things about the language programs of the university, which is of course also not in all cases, there's like a one year diploma, which is part time. I think it's all only like three mornings a week. So if you are situated in Iceland, you can still work nearly full time. Uh, but on the other hand, there's also a bachelor's degree, Icelandic as a second language. I'm, for example, currently still enrolled, um, which leads you on a very high level quite fast, but it is, of course, full-time studies. So you need to invest a lot of time in it, but it is a quite relatively cheaper option to learning Icelandic as you only pay for the tuition for a year, like I think 75,000 kroners, and then you have a whole year. Um, but on a private note, me personally, like I think watching shows and movies in Icelandic is quite helpful. For example, there's the classic called Nachtewakten. I think they had some episodes on YouTube with uh, even English or Icelandic subtitles, um, which is very just helpful to getting everyday language ingrained in you basically without a lot of effort. Yeah, uh, I mean, certainly uh, just jumping in and watching media is uh, like a really good way to go. Uh, I mean, also off the top of my head, something that uh, I've heard people finding useful is Krakaruf, uh, which is the kind of children's version of the national broadcaster. And they kind of have news for kids uh, where, you know, uh, there's these child journalists who kind of break down issues and i've actually seen it a couple times and it's actually quite good i mean it's actually pretty interesting and it's not 
I mean, it, it is literally for children, but I think that adults can get something out of it, uh, especially if they approach it as language learners. Uh, yeah. Okay. I have to try that out. Sometimes I feel like, though, with like, children's material, you're kind of, I always get a little bit of a stinge in my ego. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I think what also helps, there are books by... I forgot her name. One Caritas. is called Yao Caritas. Yeah. And for example, Austidir. And Dagatal. Yeah, exactly. And they're really helpful because it is uh, stories for adults, but they are written in a, in a just easier version of Icelandic. So it is quite good and easy to understand, but still not, it is still challenging. So not too easy. Yeah, I mean, those books have been very popular and successful, I think, because. I mean, again, people really feel this lack of this kind of B1, B2 level of resources. And so, you know, these are books that are for adult learners of language. They're not children's books, uh, but they're kind of graded readers where there's these short stories that have kind of different uh, reading levels. And I think that, yeah, a lot of people that I know um, have found those really useful. Um, it's also worth just quickly plugging uh, for any residents of Iceland, uh, especially residents of Reykjavik. Uh, there's a series of events, um, not just at the downtown library, I believe there's at least uh, some events also at the library annex in Kringlan. Um, and the event series is called uh, or Let's Chat with an Accent. And there are some really great events, uh, you know, where people read together, play board games together, do arts and crafts. Uh, I believe there's also uh, kind of like guided museum tours uh, with language learners in mind. And, you know, it's just a really nice, friendly environment for people to get together and chat and practice. So definitely, uh, if anybody out there is struggling to practice Icelandic, uh, that is a highly recommended resource. Yeah, I have still have to try that out. And I think number one thing to improve your already existing Icelandic skills is just practice talking. Just talk, maybe talk to yourself in Icelandic if you're just home alone doing something just trying to talk as much as you can and i think then you will be able to improve uh, improve improve then you will be able to improve rapidly in your skills well i think that about does it for today um so thank you for chatting alina thank you and happy uh, national icelandic day to everyone deep north is the official podcast of iceland review the oldest continuously running english language publication on iceland covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Ice and Review at our website.